Teach me about the Great Lakes. Teach me about the Great Lakes. Welcome back to Teach Me About the Great Lakes, a twice monthly podcast in which I, a Great Lakes novice, get people who are smarter and harder working than I am to teach me all about the Great Lakes. Co-host today is Megan Gunn. Megan, what's up? Nothing. Nothing. It, it has been a long day. It, it feels like it's Wednesday, but it feels like um, Friday. Yeah. It feels like next Wednesday. Five. Yeah, it feels yeah. like next Wednesday. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, it has been a little behind the curtain. Look, we we're recording this on January 20th. And so today is the day of the presidential inauguration, which for various reasons has been somewhat stressful. Um, but uh, this is the afternoon. And so far, it seems like as far as I know, everything's still okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll see. Um, yeah, so it's been uh, it's been a heck of a week, heck of a year, really. And so we're going to actually get into that a little bit with today's guest. We're going to talk about uh, COVID stuff a little bit. So some of the coolest stuff we did, I think, was right when um, lockdown kind of started, we had a couple of episodes, three episodes, actually, on uh, on coronavirus um, as it stood then. And I'll put links to them in the show notes. Let me actually refer to them right now so I don't screw it up. Uh, and so we did a, we did kind of a suite of episodes about the coronavirus. And I think they still hold up pretty well. So it's worth checking them out if you haven't heard them. The first one is episode five uh, called We're All in This Together, where we spoke with an epidemiologist from the University of Illinois about uh, just the state of the virus as it was and what it meant for outdoor recreation. Um, you know, was it okay to go outside or, or was it not? And then uh, episode six, which you can find at teachmeaboutthegreatlakes.com uh, slash six, uh, we talked about, we got another perspective from an ER physician, um, which I thought was really interesting. And then finally, episode nine, uh, we spoke with, um, let me get the woman's name. In episode nine, we spoke with Dr. Uh, Ming Kuo from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign about sort of the psychological impacts of, of isolation and, and things like that. And so it's been about a year, so I thought we'd follow up on how some of the communication bit is gone with today's guest. But she also does some really interesting work in climate communication and stuff like that. And so uh, I'm pretty excited about it. I am too. Well, good. I but before too. we get there, actually, I have got a Great Lakes fact aid for you. Are you ready? Yes. Well, not quite yet. It's nope. a Great Lakes factoid. A Great Lakes factoid. It's a great factoid about the Great Lakes. Cha. All right, this Great Lakes factoid comes from our friends at uh, Michigan Sea Grant, uh, one of a very fine Sea Grant program in the Great Lakes. The Great Lakes Basin, so that's not just the cities right on the lakes, but any you know any of the uh, drainage basin into the Great Lakes has over 34 million people, which is about 8% of the U.S. population and about 34% of the Canadian population, um, which I thought was pretty interesting. The largest wow. city, as we found out in the Great Lakes Basin, is Toronto. Uh, but the largest metropolitan area is Chicago. And that is our Great Lakes factoid. That is so cool. Yeah. You see, you're learning in 30 seconds what we're, you know normally would take 30 minutes to learn. <laughs> we're about efficiency of learning here at Teach Me About the Great Lakes. Anyway. All right. And uh, so guest, we have a guest. Let's introduce the guest. Today's guest, uh, she's a research assistant professor and a um, in the Division of Environmental and Occupational Health Sciences at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Her name is Dr. Ashley Beniak-Tabasco, and we'll do the researcher feature theme and we'll bring her on. Researcher feature. A feature in which a researcher gonna teach us about the Great Lakes. 
<laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> our guest today is Dr. Ashley Beniak-Tabasco. She's a research assistant professor in the Division of Environmental and Occupational Health Sciences at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Ashley, how are you today? I'm doing well. So much for having me. Nice to um, see you as well, Megan. Nice to see you. Yeah, we're really good. So you are a, a risk communication researcher at UIC. Is that right? Yes, that is correct. So what is a so what is how do you study risk communication? Do you like analyze people's speeches or do you look at like <laughs> infographics? I don't know, what kind of what kind of stuff do you do you study there? There's a whole variety of ways that you can study risk communication. Um, my research in the past has primarily focused on looking at um, documentary film, actually, um, and climate risk messaging in documentary, documentary film and understanding the ways in which that documentary communicates climate change impacts the audiences that it intends to reach. So we can look at the characters that are used, the way that they're framing the climate message, and really looking at the between the message and the audience response response. Huh, no kidding. So you have people watch films, I guess, and then and then uh, study their response. Like, how do you do that exactly? I'll just tell you a little bit more about my dissertation research. So in this, we had actually a five-part study. Um, so what we did is we uh, had a qualitative study. So we did some in-depth in interviews with people after they had after they had documentary. We asked them a bunch of questions, learned what they thought about it, and specifically um, what they thought about climate change after, after watching this documentary. We also did some more traditional experiments um, in a lab setting, this was pre-COVID, um, where we had folks come into a lab, fill out a survey, watch the documentary, fill out another survey so we could compare um, their previous climate change attitudes and beliefs with their post-watching this documentary climate change attitudes and beliefs. Um, and then we had an online experiment where we did the same thing with people who were watching online. Um, and then we had another um, online, uh, it wasn't a, a well, it wasn't an experiment, I suppose. We had another online experiment which had people watching um, this documentary. It's actually a documentary television series over the course of time that it um, was airing live. So they would um, fill out a survey, watch an episode, fill out another save survey, come back a week later, do the same thing over eight weeks. Over eight weeks, had this huge body of data looking at this documentary series really allowing us to have a deep dive understanding of how people responded and and why well that's fascinating so what like in terms of your broad uh broad overview of your findings what did you um what did you find like people watch the documentary how did that influence their attitudes and beliefs about climate change so so we felt we're really interested um in the documentary they thought that it was um really cool it was really well done was something that we heard a lot about um, and a lot of people, um, I can tell you the name of the documentary series as well. It's Years of Living Dangerously. Um, I'm not sure if you've heard about it, um, but... I've not um, seen it, but I have. And we'll put a link to it in our, our show notes. Yeah, um, check it out. Um, it was on National Geographic and Showtime and was on Netflix and Amazon Prime for a while. So you should be able to find it out there somewhere. Um, there's two seasons of it. Um, President Obama was in it, which was pretty cool. Um, so people were really interested in climate change after watching this documentary. 
Um, but the thing that I studied in particular was trying to understand how the narrative aspects of the documentary influence people. And so I looked at something we call narrative transportation, which is this idea that when you're really engrossed in a narrative that you're either reading or watching, um, you can potentially be transported into this world, this narrative that you're reading about. It's like you feel like you're in another place. And so what we did is we looked at how transported people felt while they were watching this documentary and compared that um, to their climate change attitudes and beliefs. And what we found is that the more transported people felt, the more engaged they got with this documentary and watching it, the higher their climate change risk perceptions were, so they felt more concerned about climate change, and the more efficacious they felt about doing something about it, so the higher um, their self-ability um, to do something about it um, got. And this we saw across political affiliations, which was really, exci really exciting for us, um, which basically told us that storytelling can be a, a really important mechanism for potentially reaching across the aisle. Um, and even more um, importantly, what we found is that at the lower end of this engagement or transportation scale, um, so people, when they weren't very transported, Democrats and Republicans were pretty far apart on um, their climate change attitudes and beliefs. So Democrats, as you might expect, because of um, the how, the way that polarization has gone with climate change over the last 20 years or so, had higher climate change risk perceptions, also felt like they could do more about climate change compared to Republicans. But as as transportation up, as people got more engaged in the documentary, that difference pretty much went away. So storytelling could potentially also be a mechanism for sort of ameliorating some of those prior impacts of polarization that we have in climate change messaging, which we think is really exciting for um, climate change storytelling for people who are trying to learn about and think about different approaches to communicating about climate change um, instead of, you know, always recanting a series of facts about how terrible things are. Maybe, you know, talking about experiences and storytelling might be a good option um, for, for reaching people um, all over the place. Because you find so so backing up a little bit so what you found is that um the there's so there are people are really polarized by their politics or maybe uh by their values when it comes to their climate change mm -hmm. beliefs right yes um and and so you found that but but when people latch onto this story that that polarization tends to to uh, i guess either go away or be minimized is that kind of what you're saying yeah yeah so um you know the more engaging the um engaged that people felt the the less those differences were at the end of the film um so you know obviously this is one study so we we would hope to do additional studies to sort of continue to support this this finding but um you know we find this to be pretty interesting and hope that it means that good storytelling um that really hopes that tries to reach um, a diverse audience can actually bring us together on some issues that are really polarized, like climate change. Have you looked at how, so you, you said that it, you could see different results in political groups, but did you look at how different demographics perceive the information or, or how transported they were? We did not. I focused um, on political affiliation specifically because of the political polarization around the issue. Mm -hmm. um, so in my particular study, I didn't look in depth at demographic studies or in at demographic um, differences. Um, however, um, some of our other studies, um, which I was not a lead author on, um, and I don't 
believe those have been published yet, but did look at some things like um, kind of classically, um, when we think about risk perceptions, it's kind of known that women are women are more higher risk perceptions than men do. And we saw that in our research as well. Um, I, like I said, I focus on political affiliation, so I'm not sure if there were any uh, differences uh, across race and ethnicity or not. Hmm. Gotcha. Or age, perhaps, especially yeah, for, yeah, for a couple age. reasons. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, and and so then, based on that, the idea is that by latching into stories, sort of these primeval things, right, that maybe we can cut through some of the, the rhetoric uh, and have more effective communications related to to climate change, or maybe even, obviously, your research about climate change, so you don't want to spread too far beyond that, but potentially even other environmental con- or natural resources controversies. Right, exactly. Um, I think, you know, historically, we have sort of shied away from relying on a mode of communication like storytelling because it feels perhaps too soft or not evidence-based. Um, but part of what mm-hmm. we're trying to show in our research is that you can do storytelling in an evidence-based way. You can still talk about facts in storytelling. You can still share people's real experiences um, and you can still have a real impact on people. And the reality of it is, is that storytelling really does influence people. People care about experiences that others have had. We have used storytelling as a mode of communication for much longer, much longer of human than the last, you know, 20 or 30 years. It's built into our culture and it's a form of communication that we should be um, thinking about how to, how to use to communicate with people because it's a mode of communication that people really understand and understand and they can, can identify with. And so do you have any examples, good examples of, uh, that's something that occurred to me, is like, maybe we can link to some good examples of using storytelling in a way that you think is, uh, how do you describe it? Do you say fact-based or, or what, it, not fact-based? How did you evidence-based. Yeah. Evidence-based. There we go. Yeah. Oh, I'm trying to remember the name of the book. Um, I do have a book that I just read that's <laughs> the All We Can Save. All We Can Save by um, Truth, Courage, and Solutions for the Climate Crisis. It's an edited volume by uh, Ayana Elizabeth Elizabeth Johnson and Catherine Wilkinson. But it's a book um, that's written by all women on the front lines of climate change. Um, who are telling stories of the science done, done, of the advocacy that they've done, of their experience with, you know, living what climate change is like for them, experiencing the effects of climate change. And these are all, um, and also there are some poems. So it's like this really nice interwoven book that tells this really comprehensive story of what it means to be on the front lines of climate change today and what it means for different cultures to be grappling with climate change. So I think that's a great example. And I also think um, years of living dangerously while, you know, in our research, we did, you know, find that there were a lot of valid criticisms of, of that documentary series, I think that it does a lot of things well, um, namely in talking about more than just the terrible impacts that we're going to face, but um, what types of solutions are out there and what do we have that's cause for hope in the in the climate context and what does that look like globally um, and in the United States? So really giving a broad perspective um, and also something that's sometimes not appreciated very much, but really using beautiful imagery, which is something that is an important part of storytelling as well. Um, so I do recommend checking that out. Um, yeah, so those were those would be two, two examples. Um, and I could probably come up with some more that I could send you as well. 
No, that's, yeah, that's great. Uh, so you've also done, go ahead, Megan. Oh, I was going to say, I think that we should just in general, maybe even as scientists, but people in general, um, like if we wouldn't just focus on the doom and gloom all the time, people would be a little bit more receptive. And people are more receptive if you show some of the positive things that there are to look forward to. Just there's, there's happiness on the other side of the bridge there or just at the end of the rainbow, there's the pot of gold. There's, some, there's something Absolutely. to look forward and, to. And, you know, there's something to look forward to. And here's some tools for what we can do to manage and how we can, you know, cope and how we can move forward. Um, those aspects of mm-hmm. messaging are really important. So you've also done some work um, looking at risk communication with re- uh, regards to the coronavirus itself, right? Um, particularly in underserved communities and how the message is being communicated or whether the message is being communicated. Can we talk about yeah, that sure. a little bit? Um, Right now, I'm one of many University of Illinois at Chicago School of Public Health faculty working on a community-based contact tracing partnership in Chicago. Partnership um, is made up of several organizations, including the Chicago Hook Partnership, UIC, uh, the National Opinion Research Center out of UChicago, Malcolm X College, and Sinai Urban Health Institute. Um, And the partnership was initiated to help respond to the COVID-19 pandemic and hopefully begin to address racial disparities um, in Chicago in particular in COVID-19 morbidity and mortality. Um, My role on this project is primarily to provide risk consultation and education as needed for the team and for our community partners. So for example, next week, I'll be talking with our community partners about communicating risk and giving them tips for things to consider in their interpersonal conversations with community members, since that's a really big need right now. Um, The contact tracers who are employed through this program and people in general are really wanting to know how to engage in sensitive topics with their neighbors and friends and community members like getting the vaccine or talking with people who are scared to get the vaccine. And hopefully we can provide um, some resources and a foundation of information about risk communication to boost confidence and efficacy to have those conversations within communities um, and help to start addressing some of the the fears and concerns that that are out there with this vaccine. Um, So there's that. Um, I can also talk a little bit about um, a commentary um, that I wrote earlier this year, if if you're interested in hearing about that. Yes, very much so. Um, But well, let's get to the commentary in a a moment. So first, um, uh, so regarding the the study and the work with the contract, so these are people that are going out in the community to try to track the spread of the virus, right? Um, Yeah, so these these, um, folks work um, at community-based organizations and what'll happen is um, they'll get a call from the city about a case and then they'll um, work to follow up with that case and find that case's contacts um, and hopefully try to get it so that um, folks feel comfortable sharing their contacts and also um, help provide information about the importance of isolation and other public health measures like wearing a mask and what to do if you have um, tested positive or you think you might be positive, share that information within the community. And the contact tracers are also employed from within the community, um, which is great because then hopefully they're they're talking to their their neighbors and and whatnot when they're having these conversations. That makes sense. And so you're consulting with them on how to talk about these sensitive topics. Like what are what are sort of the key uh, you know things that, that people should be doing when when talking about this and trying to increase, I guess, you know, uh, trust in the message and uptake and things like that. Yeah. So the things 
really are actually kind of intuitive, <laughs> like um, really just having a sense of empathy and, and listening to the people that you're talking with and trying to understand where they're coming from and what their fears are. Um, a lot of times fears are grounded in mistrust for good reason. Um, they're grounded in the fact that this is something that's very new and we've all been dealing with this assault of fear for a year, not knowing whether or not you can go outside and whether it's safe. Um, so really sort of the first tip that I give folks is really just think about what it would be like to be in that person's shoes, um, really sort of try to feel a sense of empathy and listen about what they need um, and what they're asking for. Um, another thing is to, um, really just try to not necessarily be the expert on everything. So I think a lot of times we often feel like, oh, someone's asking me this question. If I don't have the answer, it's going to look bad or whatever. Um, but in reality, if we accidentally tell somebody something wrong and then something happens because of that bad information or miscommunication, or they don't get access to information about where to get their vaccine, or they thought that they weren't supposed to have any side effects and they do, like that can all lead to a spiral of further mistrust. So really knowing the limits of what you know and being okay with saying, hey, you know what? That's a really good concern. Um, I'm not sure of the answer, but let me help you find someone um, who can. Um, and then the third thing, is really, um, you know, finding people um, who that that are trusted in the community who can be um, help that can help spread public health messages. Um, so, you know, communities aren't super interested in having experts that are outsiders come in and be sort of saviors. That's not helpful. Um, and so having yeah. folks within the community who have experience with getting the vaccine or who are um, connected to the public health department in some way or who are a trusted figure, perhaps a pastor um, or someone who's trusted in the community, those folks will be really important for helping to, um, you know, dispel misinformation, combat rumors, um, increase confidence in getting the vaccine, share their experiences, and point people in the direction of public health messaging. A lot of what you're saying is just be kind of a good human being, right? <laughs> it's funny because I was about this as I was, you know, thinking about this podcast and, and thinking about um, the talk that I'll be giving to our community partners next week. And, you know, some of the stuff you don't have to be a risk communication expert to implement in your daily life. Um, it's really sort of common sense, intuitive. How do you be an empathetic listener and help connect people with infant will help them um, not make it about you, but make it about what what they need and and realize that people come from different perspectives and they may need different information um, than what you think you should be providing. Um, but but listening and and using that to inform how you how you move forward. So yeah, let's talk about so th speaking about like who is giving messages and and trusted members of the community and things like that. You did write this recent common commentary, or you co-authored, I suppose, a commentary on messaging during COVID. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that, please? Um, commentary with um, two colleagues of mine, Dr. Ans Irfan, who's at George Washington University, and Cynthia Golombeski, who's at ours. Um, and it, you can find it in the Harvard Public Health Review, and it's called "Pandemic of Racism," and. Um, we took a look at the communications environment early on in this pandemic um, and basically felt like we just had to 
say something about it and put a call to action out there. Um, because what we saw and what we spoke about was this connection between risk and political communication and social justice. And so we, in this commentary, we specifically called out the political speech that was happening early on in the pandemic as racialized misinformation about the origins of COVID-19 that further fueled racist speech and behavior toward Asian Americans. Um, and then we also highlighted how, in some cases, African-American men were feeling unsafe with the um, face mask guidance um, because they were fearful of being targeted um, for potentially being threatening for wearing a face mask in public. Um, so we really focused in this commentary on thinking about how, you know, obviously the last four years, there's been an erosion of what is considered truth and factual information, but really looking at this intersection of how this political speech and this racialized speech, this racist rhetoric was being used as a form of misinformation that was creating an unsafe environment, an unsafer environment in an already unsafe situation. We were already dealing with the fear around the pandemic and everyone was trying to figure out what they could do to be safe. And in the midst of this, we're creating an environment where folks are fearful of taking up public health measures or fearful of going about their daily lives because they were being targeted and discriminated against. And so, um, you know, something that we haven't really talked about, but the federal government does have an important role in risk communication. Um, and, you know, that happens in a, in a number of ways, but it can also be done really badly to the detriment of uh, the pandemic response. So if you're interested in reading more about that, it's in the public, uh, the Harvard Public Health Review, I believe in um, June or July. And so what you're saying is like the specifics of like the, the, the language that people use can really matter in terms of the way that uh, the audience receives a message and, and how they interpret that. Is that kind of, uh, you know, like really down to the, the words and the, the images and the, the messages that people are saying and that, that we need to be thoughtful about Absolutely. that? Is that, that kind of yes. what you're... It's, it seems somewhat commonsensical, but also I think that sometimes people like to dismiss words as just words. And that's not the reality. Language has meaning. That's mm -hmm. the purpose of language from the get-go is to have meaning and to convey meaning. And it does so in very complex ways. And the words that we choose to use, the imagery that we choose to use, um, the codes that we choose to use in our language really have an impact on the way that able people are able to live their daily lives and on conveying important public health messaging, as was in this case, um, and so it's really important in risk messaging, especially at the highest levels where people have the most visible platforms to be very clear and unequivocal and to not be discriminatory <laughs> in the rhetoric that you're using so that you don't alienate people who need your help. In, in some ways, it, it reminds me actually of the climate work you're talking about, uh, because words and symbols, we talked about this a lot. We came up with a value statement um, uh, for Illinois, Indiana, Sea Grant. We went through this whole process. And one of the things that people said, well, this is just, you know, it's a symbol. And the answer is, yes, it is just a symbol, but symbols are important, right? And, and, and it is just words, but words are important. And in many ways, it seems to me like it ties into your climate work when it's like, these are that just different versions of stories, right? Yeah, that's so true. Um, there are so many parallels between how the COVID response has unfolded and how um, climate change has been polarized over the last 25-ish years. Um, obviously, there's a lot of political forces that are involved in that, but they're, um, 
you know, it's it's a very similar playbook, so to speak, um, the ways in which language was sort of weaponized against people um, away from what might be considered a common sense public health approach or common sense approach to addressing climate change to a place where we're now in this catastrophe that we're in. Um, so yeah, so there's there's definitely a lot of um, a lot of synergies between those two, and they're they're very similar in a lot of ways. And I think that moving forward, um, people who are involved in the COVID pandemic response can probably look to how um, the climate change response is evolving and how people are specifically learning to communicate in that highly political, highly polarized environment um, to learn some things moving forward. So who should people be listening to, I guess? Who who are these communicators um, that people should be looking looking to listen to as the vaccine is rolling out? Sure. Who has the um, best words, I, I guess? I think that's a good question without a simple answer. <laughs> um, it's not simple because of the current polarized, you know, information environment that we're in the with the massive amount of misinformation out there. Um, and where people, quite frankly, are choosing to get their information. Um, so, I mean, obviously, um, you need trusted voices at all levels. The only messenger cannot be the president. You need people at all levels who are trusted. Um, at the national and state levels, ideally, there would be a coordinated and consistent messaging, which would make it easier for folks to know what the message is, where it's coming from, and where to go if they needed to know more. The president, CDC, and governors should be providing accurate, consistent, and coordinated public health messaging. Um, and this type of response, um, which should be the norm, can help maintain calm in crisis because people will know where to go for information and find a little bit of comfort knowing that there are some competent folks in charge trying to solve our problems. Um, you know, who is trusted is really complicated. Scientists still enjoy a fairly high percentage of public trust and should be included in messaging public health scientists and practitioners often have training in health communication as well as grounding in population health, um, which is critical in this moment. And so they should be involved in communication at the top um, as well as advising on response in general. Um, and then when we're thinking about talking at um, talking with communities at the individual levels, again, like we said earlier, um, you know, folks aren't really going to necessarily just get the vaccine because the president, governor, or mayor says so. Um, so having trusted voices in the community helping to deliver some of these messages is really important. Um, you know, the state and local health departments are going to be really key moving forward, especially with the vaccine rollout, because they're, um, the vaccine rollout is happening right now on a state-by-state -state basis. And so what's happening in Illinois is going to be different than what's happening in Indiana. Um, so keeping an eye out on your local and state um, public health departments Local news um, usually has a close connection with local public health and provides frequent updates. So that might be a good option for people as well. Um, CDC um, will have um, messaging. And like I said, hopefully moving forward, we'll have a more coordinated and consistent response from the federal government as well. Well, what I'm, what I'm hearing from you is like, what's really important though is having a number of voices out there, right? Um, because not everybody trusts the same people. And exactly. uh and and so having a diversity of voices, both in terms of the level of where they're coming from, but also who they are. I mean, even down to what they look like, uh, exactly. I think is, is 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 really important. Well, Ashley, this is a fascinating uh, conversation, and as someone who's done a fair amount of climate communication research, I could talk to you about this for hours. But that's actually. <laughs> 
not why we invited you on Teach Me About the Great Lakes this week. The reason that we invited you on Teach Me About the Great Lakes is to ask you these two questions. And the first one is this. If you could choose to have a great donut for breakfast or a great sandwich for lunch, which one would you choose? Definitely the donut for breakfast. Donut for breakfast. For sure. Yeah. And and so if I'm in Chicago, uh, you're in Chicago, right? Yes. I am in Chicago. If I'm in Chicago, where should I go to get a great donut? Ooh, um, there's this place called Fire Cakes that's quite good. And they have some pretty interesting flavors. They had a peach cobbler-esque type flavor over the summer. Uh, Pistachio something or other, which was really good. Um, They have some really unique flavors um, and they're always super tasty. So I recommend checking them out. Fire Cakes, done and done. As soon as I get vaccinated, (laughs) that won't be the first place, but it it might be like the third. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, great. And then the second is this. So you're a communications researcher. You research uh, risk communication and, and related things, right? What, uh, what, is, what makes you good at your job? What is a key skill for someone in your industry to have that you think maybe is worth thinking about in the, the larger sense? Sure. Um, I think that having a sense um, of empathy and sort of duty to my fellow citizens is one of the key things that makes me good at my job. I have a public service oriented um, sort of mission for myself. Um, and I take that to work in everything that I do. Um, And I really just think that to be a good communicator, you need to be a good listener and you need to be able to to try to understand where other people are coming from. Um, And I think that those are things that I I hope that I can do and that I think that's really important for um, someone who's trying to do a good job at communicating. Great. Well, if people want to find out more about your work, uh, where can they go? Is there like a website or a social media feed or should they just read your uh, your commentaries? What, what should we do? Uh, oh, I suppose. Um, I have a small description of my work on um, my UIC website, which you can find just by Googling my... I'm also on LinkedIn. Um, I have a Twitter handle as well. It's at AB Tabasco. Um, and so I... On, uh, to be frank, I took a little bit of a break from Twitter over the, uh-huh. <laughs> the last month or so because I desperately needed that. Um, but I typically try to discuss discuss climate change, um, risk calm, and other social issues um, on my Twitter feed. Yes, I signed out of Twitter uh, in October of 2020. Uh, my personal account, I still do the show account. And uh, I, uh, it's been nice. I'll be honest. It's been nice. The break has definitely been nice. (laughs) Uh, Dr. Ashley Bignac-Tabasco, Research Assistant Professor in the Division of Environmental and Occupational Health Sciences at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Thank you so much for coming on and teaching us all about the Great Lakes. Thanks so much for having me. It was really great to talk with you, Stuart and Megan. Anyway, well, that was a pretty interesting conversation with Ashley there. The, it sounds like she's done a lot of fascinating work, um, both in, oh, yeah. in climate and in COVID. And we think about that a lot in, in like extension, right? And outreach work. It's like the the, the importance of the messenger and, and how that's that's hard mm-hmm. to overrate. And it seems like it's something that it's it, it takes active work, I think, to find good messengers because they're inherently, you know, if you're going to speak to a whole populace, they're not going to be just like you are. Uh, you know, if you want to speak to like yourself and people like you, um, then it's real easy to find those people. But but uh, mm-hmm. 
reaching out, I think, is a, it's a, a challenge, but I think Ashley argued, and it's a good argument to me, uh, kind of an imperative, right, that you do that. Yeah. yeah. And it's all about finding those people that the people in the community trust. Yeah. Just not just somebody in the community, those those trusted leaders. Yep. Yeah. And that's uh, well, can be a big challenge. Um, anyway, um, because it's hard. And as always, the lesson is continue to fund social science researchers to do work. And uh, we, you know, we can help with that. But that's my message yeah. for most episodes of most podcasts, I think, is <laughs> fund me to do stuff. Uh, good. Well, Megan, uh, where can people go to find out more about the work that you do? You can find me on Twitter at underscore TFFP and also on Instagram at The Familiar Faces Project. There is a website, thefamiliarfacesproject.org, that I am actively working on updating right now. And so there will be more resources. Res- there will be more resources on there soon. Excellent. Well, I'm looking forward to that. And that's actually, I mean, it's the exact same story you're talking about, right? In terms of familiar, that's an idea of trust. I mean, it's trust. And it's, uh, I think you're more looking at like models of success, right? Um, yes. Uh, but, but still, it's the same thing. It's, 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 it's important to have good models out there for trust, models for success and, and things like that. And so I'm really thrilled for the work you're doing and can't wait to see it continue to evolve. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, hey, contact the show. You can hit us up on Twitter where uh, Teach Great Lakes is the Twitter thing. Uh, send us an email at uh, teach me about the Great Lakes at gmail.com. Um, and uh, I think that's I think that's the best way. I think that's all the ways. There are probably more ways, but those are the ways. My name is Stuart Carlton. Thank you so much for listening. And uh, we'll be back on the first Monday of every month and the third Mondays of most months. And uh, in the meantime, keep grading those lakes. And there it is. Keep grading those lakes. So I have a tidbit. I don't know if you want to keep it in the recording, but it was something that I was thinking about as she was talking about communication. Okay. Um, And I don't know if you can hear my dog barking. I cannot. But, But I wonder how, well, I know it's played a huge role. Social media has played a huge role in the messaging um, around the coronavirus for the last year and the messaging around most things that we've been hearing for the last however long social media has really been um, yes. around and impacting us. But I, I wonder how easy it was to get people on board with no shirt, no shoes, no service back in the day um, and how like how long that will take for people to get on board with the no shirt, no shoes, no mask, no service <laughs> oh, right. um, type of message. Huh. So you think so if if like a masking thing. So so you mean maybe that type of simple message right now we could get people uh, on board with that. I don't know. Yeah. That's a good question. But do you think it's do, so are you thinking long term with masks? Do you think that's going to be a thing for a long time? I don't know. But if it does have to be a thing, how long did it take for the other simple messages to actually yeah. For people to stop fighting it, I guess. That's, That's a good question. Yeah. Right. Were people, <laughs> were there shirtless dudes barging into Starbucks in like 1954, right? Yelling about their freedom because they, uh, they wanted to a shirtless coffee. That, yeah. That is a good question. <laughs> right. Guy throws his toe cheesy foot up on the thing. <laughs> yeah. I need my latte. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't know. That is a good question, Megan. I don't know. Right. And I think, but I think your point is this, is that, or I don't know what, you know what your point is, but one thing that makes me think of, I guess, uh, rather than me tell you what your point is, you can probably do that on your own. Um, but it is, 
it is true. There's been a lot of pushback on even simple, frankly, low key things, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, now, granted, I don't live in a city, but but it's really not that hard for me to wear a mask when it's when it's necessary to do so, right? I mean, yeah. uh, there aren't many people in West Lafayette compared to like mm-hmm. Chicago um, or, or whatever. But 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 even that very simple message. I would surmise, um, I'm not a researcher in this, but I would surmise because of the politicization, right? Um, but mm-hmm. even even those very simple messages have been extraordinarily controversial. And yeah. uh, um, and how much does that have to do with messengers? And how much does that have to do with um, uh, the lack of modeling behavior um, in mm-hmm. in certain uh, uh, groups? I don't know. It's a it's a it's a really good question. And just even having consistent messaging on all levels, like Ashley was talking about, yeah. having from upper government to local and state agencies. and Yep. Yeah, everything. I feel like uh, consistency has not been the strong suit of the messaging around this kind of uh, at many levels. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not been a super consistent time in our nation's history, I think it's safe to say. Um, yeah. Well, that's a great question. And I don't know the answer. But uh, yeah. I don't know. So it is your dog. What kind of dog do you have? She's a Boston Terrier mix. Um, she's about no, this big. She's a small thing, um, but she's apparently overweight and needs to lose some weight before she gets her teeth cleaned. Because she, to me, she's a baby, but apparently almost seven years old means you're an old dog. <laughs> and so old dogs have to do different things than baby dogs. Than do. baby dogs, yeah. Our dog <laughs> is 15 and she's, uh, uh, we're, we're getting there. Um, the time is coming. It, uh, so it's going to be rough when that happens, but, uh, mm. yeah, yeah. But I still think of her, it, it, it's sad, right? Because you still think of her as the, uh, you know, the play ball all day long dog mm-hmm. and, and everything. And she kind of thinks of herself like that. Like she's always been a really great dog. Awesome with kids, but she's just wanted every dog to know that she is the, the, the leader here in the champ. Yeah. And so, so like whenever we walk her, <laughs> she'll bark at any dog, like regardless of, of size, yeah. And and she'll still do that, but but you know, as she walks like 1 mile an hour on our nightly walk, it takes us like a half hour to walk th- two thirds of a mile uh cuz <laughs> she's just old. But uh dogs are awesome. So you have a yeah, tiny yeah. 7 years old. Yeah, she's not young anymore. Tiny but over thing is though in quarantine, everybody's getting a little bit of weight on. Yeah, know, they like are. That. But she she has so much energy that it's hard to think of her as an old dog. Yeah. Not as much. It's it's crazy to think she had even more energy when I first got her. She was like 3 4 months. But she still has a lot of energy and will just yeah. bounce she's bounce around all over the place. Well, she'll keep you young as long as she's there. Um yeah, yeah keep you active. That's the that's been the great blessing with the dogs. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, I didn't want the dog. I uh, uh my wife did. She wasn't my wife at the time, but we got her, you know, 15 years ago or whatever. And uh but then we got her and I have not fallen in love with her. I'm not going to say that, but somehow it has become my responsibility to do all of the dog stuff um for the <laughs> dog that I never wanted. And that's okay. But but so, you know, the boy so we go on two walks a day and that that moment is like kind of my moment because my kids don't want to go walking when it's like fifteen degrees out or whatever. Yeah. Um and so that but that's been a, a real blessing. It's just that couple of moments of reflectiveness. Um or a chance to listen to podcasts, depending. Uh <laughs> on <laughs> how much I feel like reflecting, which, you know, sometimes lately, not all that much. Yeah. Uh-huh. Anyway. I understand. 